Lord, we thank you so much for your word, God, to, to, to come here in your house and, and dive in. Uh, Lord, uh, such, a, such a powerful book, uh, the beginning. God, I pray uh, that you would just speak to us through this book, that you would speak to us through this, this chapter, through this family story. God, that you did so much uh, through. You, you used this family in a mighty way despite uh, their faults, uh, despite their shortcomings, God. And uh, I just pray that you would uh, meet us right where we're at tonight, that your spirit would move in power, that you would stir our hearts. And Lord, we would leave here uh, better than we came. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so if you recall, we're still talking about Joseph. Uh, Joseph, as I've said several times before, but for those of you that uh, just started coming, <laughs> thank you, Mark. Before I get into this, <laughs> I forget every time if I don't write it down. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you, could you raise your hand real quick if you didn't bring a Bible or, or whatever, you left it at home, or if you don't have one, I'd love to get a Bible in your hand so that you could just follow along. Uh, yeah, just raise your hand. Mark will pass out some Bibles to you so that you can see uh, that what I'm communicating is, is from the Word, uh, and it's not just what I think uh, will be in quite a few passages. Now, I don't expect you to, to follow me every single time I flip to a scripture, but just do the best you can, because when you're seeing it for yourselves, it'll help you remember better, and uh, really, that's the Lord's heart for all of us, that we would be students of the Word and, and, and kind of learn where, where things are, are, and more importantly, what, what it says, what the Bible says. Um, so, getting back into... Uh, where we've been in the last, uh, really, several months. Been in the story of Joseph. Joseph's story consumes uh, a little over 25% uh, of Genesis. So he's a very important character in the Bible. God saw fit that he would consume so much of this first book in the Bible. Now we see Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was falsely accused. He was uh, thrown into prison. He was uh, a, a slave. He was so many different things. And we see that God was using all those things to, to shape and fashion and mold him to become the leader that God called him to be, to literally redeem his his whole family because what we see happening is joseph has this gift of interpretation he can interpret dreams he gives all the glory to god but there's a really important dream that he interprets for pharaoh and we see through this dream that god told him there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine and not only did joseph interpret the dream for pharaoh he came up with a very wise and very administrative plan to take those seven years of plenty and figure out a way to endure the famine so that they would have food during the famine. But we see all these other people are suffering from the famine. So everyone needs to go to Joseph, including his family. And then he had this encounter with his brothers. And we discussed that the last few weeks. And then last week we see Jacob, though he's old, 130 years old to be exact, he has to take this long journey all the way to Egypt, walking by faith, not knowing if he would make it. And that's what we discussed last week, that the, the journey isn't over. You might be, have been walking with the Lord for a long time and, and, and have that, that thought that, ah, the exciting times, the passionate times, they're, they're done with. I did the missionary thing. I did the whatever thing. But now I'm a little older. We see God wasn't through with Jacob yet, and he still had an adventure for him. Now, 
in this chapter, Genesis chapter 47, we're going to see that though there's a famine in the land, God saw fit to provide for this family. God literally provided for the family in the midst of the famine, which brings me to the title of this teaching, God's provision in the midst of famine. God's provision in the midst of famine. Now, we in America don't really know what a a famine is like. We have so much food and uh, we have more of a problem with obesity than than famine. Uh, But we can relate this word famine to to really any trial that we go through in life, any hardship. And the truth is, and a truth that we see in Scripture, uh, and, and even looking at our own lives, is that when we face trials, when we face seasons of hardship, we have this tendency to focus on the negative. We have this tendency to think like, because this is bad, my life is bad. And we overgeneralize this thing and we're literally moved by the trial. But if we would open our eyes, if we would really look and see, we would see that, that God's been providing for us all along, even in the midst of the famine, even in the midst of the trial. Not that that time wasn't hard, but if we really look, we'll see that God was working for our favor in the midst of that difficult time. So we're going to look at this story and see how God provided for this family in the midst of famine. And we're going to take that and we're going to apply it to our Christian walk, how God provides for us and he takes care of us when we're going through difficult times, not just materially, not just practically, but also spiritually. If you look at Genesis chapter 47, verse 1, says, then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Okay, Pharaoh already said that it was okay for his family to come, but now he's asking uh, Pharaoh if his family can stay for an extended period of time. And what Joseph does is, is fascinating, and it gives us a picture of Jesus. It's important to note that Joseph takes five of his brothers, not all of his brothers, he takes five of his brothers and presents them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the ultimate authority in the land. He was like the king, if you will. And when you look at the Bible, the number five is the number of grace. So what we see Joseph doing here, he doesn't go to Pharaoh and bash his brothers. He doesn't go to Pharaoh and be like, you know what these guys did? <laughs> they, they betrayed me. They sold me into slavery. They did all these things. Then they lied about it to my father. They did all this stuff. No, 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 no. He doesn't bring them before the king and accuse them. He presents them faultless before the king, before Pharaoh. That's what Jesus does with us. He, because of the grace that he has on us, he presents us faultless in the presence of our father. If you look at Jude verse 24, Jude verse 24 says this. Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jesus presents us faultless before the throne of God. He doesn't present us to God and be like, 
You know what they did? You know what he did? You know what she did? You know what their past is? No, no, no. He wipes that all away. He, he, he cleanses us of that and he presents us with grace as faultless before the throne. Regardless of what we've done in the past, if we receive Jesus, he declares us righteous. He declares us faultless. And that's what Joseph is doing because the love that he has for his brothers, he's not bringing accusation against them before Pharaoh. No, he's presenting them as, hey, hey, I want you to take care of these guys. I want you to bless my family, much like the Lord does with us. Genesis chapter 47, verse 3. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So what we see here is these brothers. Yes, it's true that they were shepherds. We see that earlier in scripture in Genesis chapter 37. But Joseph directed them to tell Pharaoh that we were, they were shepherds. Why? If you remember, it says in the last chapter that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And Joseph knew that if his people, his family could be separated from the Egyptians. They had a better chance to, to stay holy, to stay set apart, to not fall into the idolatrous, uh, idolatrous ways of the Egyptians. So God even used their occupation to set them apart. And we discussed that last time. So now we see the brothers, they're saying what Joseph told them. Hey, we're shepherds. And what these brothers are doing is they're communicating to this king, to Pharaoh, and they're letting him know, we don't just need grain. We need land. We need land for our sheep. We need land to dwell in. They're coming before the king with a desperate need. And as we see this king, Pharaoh, he's going to provide for their every need, just like the Lord does with us. When we come before the Lord in desperate need, Praying prayers that Jesus would pray, not just like something that we want, something that we need. When we come before the Lord with that desperate need, he takes care of us. It's first Peter chapter five, verse seven. You don't need to flip there. You can just write the verse down. It says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. The Lord cares for us. He, he cares for our needs. He takes care of our needs. He's a good father. When we come to him, when we are in need, he will take care of us. Luke says this in his gospel, Jesus speaking actually, in Luke chapter 11, speaking of of prayer and communicating to the Father, Luke chapter 11, verse 11, pick it up there. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks of a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He's a good father. He's not going to give us a a bad thing when we ask for a good thing. When we're in that famine, when we're in that trial, when we're going through that difficult time, when we cry out to the Lord by faith, James tells us, trusting, not doubting, believing that he can provide. 
the Lord's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of the things that we actually need. Now, the problem is we don't always realize what we need. And there's different, there's a difference between wants and needs. And there are things that we want that we think we need. But we're talking about needs in this family. These brothers, they're in desperate need. They come before Pharaoh. They ask Pharaoh, hey, we need land. We don't just need grain. We need land, not just for our sheep. We also need land to dwell in. And we'll see Pharaoh answers them according to their petition. Genesis chapter 47, verse 5. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. This is such an amazing picture. These men, these brothers, they petition to the leader, to Pharaoh, to the king, if you will. And they ask him, hey, this is what we need. We need some land. And what does Pharaoh do? He gives them the best land. He gives them the best he has to offer. When we ask the Lord from a place of need, from a place of desperation, he doesn't give us the leftovers. No, no, he gives us his best. Point number one, God provides his best in the famine. God provides his best in the famine. See, maybe it was when you first came to the Lord. Maybe you were brought to a place of brokenness and you cried out to God knowing your need of forgiveness. And you said, God, I need you to come in. I need you to change my life. And what did the Lord do? He gave you his best in the person of Jesus Christ, in his son. And that's what the scriptures tell us. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it says this, Romans eight thirty-two: He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, sorry, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Look at what the author Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. Because God gave us his best, he gave us his only begotten son. How will he not? Why wouldn't he freely give us all things as needed? God is a giving God. He gives with abundance when we're in that place of desperation, when we're in that place of him. And so often... He doesn't just give us salvation. He doesn't just give us his son. He gives us extra. He gives us more. He gives us blessings. He gives us better relationships. He gives us a new life. So many different things, not just salvation. He changes our lives even here, even now. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, you can write it down. It says this, Ephesians three twenty. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's not only able to do exceedingly abundantly, but he's willing. And the Lord, when we come to him in that place of need, he so often provides for us abundantly. Now, I'm not talking about 
land and material things. That was the case for him. But often it's spiritual things, whether it's comfort or a clear conscience or love or joy or peace or the fruit of the spirit, whatever it may be. But so often in the midst of the famine, we don't see the abundance. We don't see the blessings in our lives and we can get almost blinded or a clouded vision because of the famine. And we again start focusing on the negative and we don't realize all the positive. Like maybe you're going through a hard time. Maybe, maybe your job's not working out right now. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you don't even have a job. But you got a family. You got friends. You got a body of believers to come together with, to pray with people that genuinely love you and care for you and want the best for you. It's so easy for us to get caught up with the famine and not see God's abundance, not see how he's providing for us. But if we open our eyes, the provision might not be what we think it should be, but it's enough. It's always enough, but we have to look to be able to see in God in this text and in our lives. He provides in so many ways. Look what happens in verse six. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's so generous, very different Pharaoh from Genesis to Exodus. Um, obviously, it's it's 400 plus years later, uh, but. Anyways, we see Pharaoh, he, he, he says, hey, is there any competent men that could be chief herdsmen for me? So not only does Pharaoh say, I'll give you the best of my land, he offers them jobs. Can any of these guys take care of my my sheep? Can they take care of my livestock? Why? Well, first of all, we said that shepherds were an abomination uh, to the Egyptians and uh, the, the livestock were considered unclean animals. So there was few people that actually had that role. But what we see Pharaoh doing out of the kindness of his heart, he's saying, I'm not just going to provide for you the best land. I'm going to provide for you an opportunity. I'm going to provide for you literally a job that you can make money from. See, God, in the midst of the famine, he gives us opportunities. Point number two, God provides opportunity in the famine. God provides opportunity in the famine. When we face that trial in our life, when we face that hardship, when it seems like so many things are not going our way, they're going against us, we have to purpose to open our eyes and look for the opportunities. Maybe the opportunities that we desire or we want aren't there, but God will open up another door. He'll give us another opportunity. And he says that in other words, in Revelation chapter 3, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaking to the church of Philadelphia, he says this, verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works, see I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Have kept my word, and have not defiled, denied my name. We see that there's doors that the Lord shuts during famines, that He shuts during trials, and then there's other doors that He opens. There might be 
be a door that you were trying so hard to get through. And it could be a job, it could be a relationship, it could be anything. It could be a new house and it didn't work out. Whatever it was, and there was this thing that you were pressing for and God closed that door. And in that moment, man, what? Is God against me or something? There's, there's might be a sense of, of hopelessness and helplessness. Maybe work's just not going, uh, uh, going the, the way that it should be going. And I'm having struggles uh, providing for the family, whatever that door was. And he closes that door. But there's another door. There's another door of opportunity. There's another opportunity that the Lord has for us. And it could be this. I gave you this time away from work or whatever it was to, to seek me more. Uh, I gave you this time. Uh, I didn't give you the job that pays more. I gave you the job that pays less because there's someone there that I want you to minister to, that I want you to talk to. I want you to tell them about me and their soul is more important than your job. And the Lord, he does these things, but we have to be looking for them. We see Pharaoh in this case, he opened this door for these men to have jobs. He was taking care of them just as God God takes care of us. In Genesis chapter 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now there's something interesting that I want to point out. It says twice that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Okay, in Hebrews chapter seven, verse seven, you can write it down. Hebrews seven, seven, he says, uh, the author of Hebrews says, he says, the, the, the greater, the better blesses the lesser. Meaning that for some reason, somehow, some way, and I'll explain my opinion, Jacob was greater than Pharaoh. Even though Pharaoh was the greatest man in the land, he had the, the strongest, most powerful empire of that time. It wasn't Pharaoh blessing Jacob. It was Jacob blessing Pharaoh because in God's eyes, Jacob was greater than Pharaoh. Spiritually, he was greater than Pharaoh. Though Jacob has his struggles compared to Pharaoh, he's a spiritual giant. It's very interesting. Pharaoh must have uh, looked up to Jacob in some sense to, to receive this blessing from him because he knew what this meant. But look at what Jacob says in his response. I want to reread a little bit of it. Halfway through verse 9, he says, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. He asks him how old he is, and he says, I'm 130 I've had evil days. I, I haven't lived as long as my, my fathers have. And, he, and he's saying all these different things. Now, there's a truth here that uh, Jacob, he's, he's communicating in humility and he's communicating truth. He's had a, some rough stuff happen to him. He was, he was deceived by his uncle. He's, he's had some, some difficulties in his life. He's bounced around quite a bit. He thought he lost his son. Then he thought he lost his other son. And then he lost, thought he lost his other son. So he hasn't had the easiest life. But what we see here though is, is, is Jacob's being pretty negative, right? We don't see anything in there of like, dude, God has blessed me abundantly. And like, praise God. He's been so good to me. He's given me this great family. He's given me these great opportunities. He's given me all these different things and we look at Jacob's life and there's an abundance of blessing in his life. No, he's not talking about that. When he's brought before Pharaoh, he's 
be a negative. He's complaining a little bit, if you will. And we can fall into this as well as believers. And considering all that God's done for us, it's easy for us to forget. And it's easy for us to, to begin complaining about all the little things and the mishaps and the shortcomings and the things that go wrong in our life. But the Bible says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without complaining, without disputing. I hear way too many Christians complaining all the time. With a negative attitude. Miserable Christians. It doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. Christians should be joyful. It's the fruit of the spirit. When we get to this complaining thing. It's like. Wait. Is there something that we're missing? Is there something that's not clicking? Because Paul also writes in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5. Verse 18. I'll read it for you. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything. When times are good. When times are bad. In everything give thanks to the Lord. Because the good big scale big picture far outweighs the bad. Regardless of the negative things that happen in our life. It doesn't compare to heaven. We're getting heaven. No matter what happens in this life. It's only temporary. It will be over very soon. And we get heaven for eternity. So there's no reason to complain. There's only reason to rejoice. Gotta stop complaining and start rejoicing. We see Jacob. I love him. But he falls into this quite a bit. All these things are against me, he said a couple chapters ago. There's this negativity that he somehow has. Even though he is a patriarch, a very respected man, had definitely a solid relationship with the Lord, but... He's not perfect. And we see this character quality come up in him time and time again. And I want to point out something important. He's before Pharaoh, who's not a believer. Okay, Pharaoh, the Egyptians, they worship all kinds of idols. And I believe Jacob's attitude in this setting is robbing him of a ministry opportunity. See, when we get into this negative Nancy attitude where we're complaining all the time, we have to consider... Who's hearing this? Who's watching me? Is there an unbeliever looking at my life at work? They know I'm a Christian and they hear me always complaining about my boss or how bad my life is at home or how bad whatever is. Are they hearing that? Is that the testimony that that we're communicating? Because if that's what they hear from a Christian and maybe you're the only Christian that they know, how is that going to make them want Jesus? Dude, this guy's more miserable than I am. This girl's worse off than I am. Why would I want a relationship with the Lord? See, our attitude, our perspective, our countenance, a negative one can rob us of ministry opportunities. But if we have that countenance, if we're expressing that joy, if we're praising the Lord in the good, in the bad, in the plenty, in the famine, now that gives God a a good testimony to work with and literally your countenance, what comes off your face even, even not, not even what you say, even your demeanor. That can literally bring someone to the Lord. Or a negative countenance can, can deter someone from walking with the Lord. Now again, Jacob, he's being honest, he's being real, and it's good, and he's humble. He's not trying to make a name for himself before Pharaoh, so I'll give him that. But everything that he's talking about is, is negative. Look at Genesis chapter 47, verse 11. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. 
in the land of Ramses, uh, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number and their families. So we see that God provided possessions and land for this family. He gave them land. He gave them job opportunities. He gave him, uh, gave them possessions as well. Now, this is interesting. They know that they're called to where? To live where? The promised land, right? That was the promise to, to Abraham. And God said that all this was going to happen. They'd be delivered to another nation. Uh, it says it in Genesis chapter 15. But we see they're given land, but they're not given the promised land. It's not necessarily the land that they want, but it's in, in the time. It's the land that they need. See, God will often provide for us what we need, not necessarily all we want because according to God's promise, the, the promised land was for them. We know that he'll give it back to them uh, after at the end of Exodus, Deuteronomy, all Joshua specifically. But this is also another interesting thing in how it connects to the end times and uh, Jesus, specifically his second coming. We'll see uh, when Jesus comes back in his second coming at the end of the tribulation, we'll see that a third of the Jews will be saved and Jesus is going to grant them land during the millennial reign. And there's going to be tribulation saints as there, there's going to be Jews that are saved during the tribulation. And then there's going to be the church that rules and reigns with Christ. But those that get saved during the tribulation, they're going to, they're going to have land. And his people will have land again. But it's not the promised land. It's land. They'll be here on earth. And that's a lot, uh, uh, another topic. But it all ties into here. It talks a lot more about that in Zechariah uh, chapter 14 and in Revelation. If you look at Genesis chapter 47, picking it up in verse 13. Now there was no bread in all the land. For the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money to Pharaoh's house. So Joseph, he sees this thing playing out. Remember, they're two years into the famine. So that means there's going to be five years left. And Joseph, he continues to make wise decisions. He's still working out other plans to continue to endure have all of Egypt and his family endure through this famine. So he starts collecting money. See, God, he provides for us and he'll even provide for us in the famine. But like Joseph, we got to use wisdom. We got to be good stewards and we got to make sure we do the most, do the best with what he gives to us, what he entrusts to us. And that's exactly what Joseph is doing. He's using wisdom. He's being a good steward in the midst of the famine. Genesis chapter 47, verse 15. So when the money failed... In the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. It's so easy for us to be consumed by money. Jesus addresses money quite a bit. It's like his second favorite topic. He says you can serve God or mammon, not both. You got to choose what you want. Do you want money, materialism, or do you want God and there's a reality. This is why Jesus brings it up. Because money, materialism, it can consume people. But as we see here and in other places, money will fail. 
money will fail us eventually, just like it did in Egypt. God won't fail us. There's something also interesting about this in Revelation chapter 18, we see the economic system that the Antichrist set up, it fails just before the second coming. So we see this is similar, it's a picture of the tribulation, seven year famine, seven year tribulation. Okay, so we see at the end, towards the end of the seven year tribulation, the Antichrist economic system is going to fail and there's going to be chaos and confusion. Just like we see here, the money ends up failing. But look what happens. This is important. At the end of verse 15, it says, All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. The famine brought people to Joseph. Just like what? The tribulation is going to bring people to Jesus. There's going to be the tribulation saints, those that get saved during the tribulation. The church will already be raptured, but it'd be like this. I've explained it before, but uh, just so you can follow me a little bit. It like maybe maybe you got a friend or a family member that you've been ministering to like your whole life and they don't want anything to do with the Lord. Like they're like, I don't want it. I don't care. That's for you. You do that church thing. You do the Jesus thing. It ain't for me. And that person, you're like trying, and you even talk to him about stuff. Hey, one day the church is going to be raptured, and, and you're going to be left here going through the tribulation. Now, all of a sudden, the church is raptured, and they're like, oh, maybe what he was saying is true. What they were talking about to me was true. Now, because the church is gone, they recognize the truth of the Bible and what you warn them of, and they end up accepting Christ during the tribulation. Those are called tribulation saints. The problem with them, though, is many of them are going to be beheaded. It's not going to be easy for them. They're going to have a very difficult Christian walk. We also see, as I've said several times before, there's going to be Jews that are saved. The point is, the Lord, we look at the tribulation and we look at that as like, man, Revelation, that's a rough book. Why would God uh, do all these things and to, to the people and let all these things happen? But the truth is, God's trying to get their attention. Sometimes when things are always good. We don't pay attention to God. But when we go through a little something, go through a little suffering, go through a little trial, what happens? You got nowhere else to look but up. And that's what the tribulation is. It gives the rest of the people that, hey, you got God to depend on and God alone. So many people will come to Jesus during the tribulation like they did with Joseph during the famine. Genesis chapter 47, verse 16. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. So we see Joseph first collects their money. They buy their grain. They use their savings to buy the grain. Now the next year they're out of money. They spent all their savings. Now they have nothing left but their livestock. So Joseph says, hey, give me your livestock and I'll give you the grain. Now some people will criticize Joseph and say, man, why didn't he just give him the grain, all these different things? No, no, no. Joseph was trying to keep the economy in, in, in good standing. If he just gave everything away at the end of the famine, the economic system, it absolutely crumbles in Egypt. They have to have something in return. He does everything to take care of these people and he dealt very fairly with them. That's why, and plus they have no other choice. <laughs> they kind of have to do what he's saying, but he's being very fair with them as we'll see. So they give their money, then they give their livestock. Genesis chapter 47, verse 18. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, 
We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh? Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So the people, they gave up their money, okay? They gave up their livestock. All they got left is their bodies and their land. They're brought to a complete state of brokenness, and they're willing to sell themselves into slavery. Think about this in our Christian walk. Uh, maybe you were like me and, and, and everything that you tried fail you, uh, failed you. Uh, 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 the, the, the success, the materialism, the drugs, the relationships, all these other things that I tried, uh, they failed me. And ultimately, I was brought to a place of brokenness that I knew my only hope was to do what? In other words, sell myself into slavery to the Lord. That's literally what we're doing when we accept God into our lives. We're choosing not to be a slave of sin anymore. We're choosing to be a slave to Christ. That's why Paul introduces himself in so many of his epistles as a what? Bond servant of Jesus Christ. He knew what he was doing when he accepted the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was choosing to be a slave to Christ. And what's a bond servant? Well, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, there's a lot to it. I don't want to get into it too much. But in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, we see that after seven years, the slave would be freed. But this slave had an opportunity to uh, continue on with his master. Why? It says for the love they had for their master, they continued on in living with their master because they knew that their life with their master was better than their life on their own. Same thing goes for our Christian walk. It's like, hey, I know who I am without Jesus. I know what my life is without Jesus. And I would way rather be a slave to Jesus than a slave to my sin. And that's really what we're choosing. That's what they were choosing. I'd rather, I say, why should we die? I'd rather be a slave to Joseph than die. It's the same thing. I'd rather be a slave to Jesus than a slave to sin that leads to death. Pick it up in Genesis chapter 47, verse 20. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. So we see that they choose slavery and um <clears throat> Joseph, being a good master under Pharaoh, he he takes care of them. He provides for them. He doesn't like trick them and like, oh, you sold me into slavery. Now I'm going to take advantage of you and make you build all these pyramids. No, no. He takes care of them. He sticks to his word. When we choose to make ourselves bond servants to Jesus Christ, he takes care of us. We're not losing. We're gaining. He He takes care of us when we choose that life of slavery to the Lord. Uh, again, read in verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priest had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Okay, this is interesting. So the priest, the Egyptian priest, these aren't like priests that are serving God, worshiping God. They're, they're worshiping uh, pagan gods, Egyptian gods. Now these priests, it was literally the God the God, the living God, Yahweh, that saved them. 
because of Joseph and the interpretation of the dream. It was God that gave that interpretation so that this whole nation, including the priests, would be saved. But even though these priests were literally saved by God, they don't choose to worship God. They don't choose to follow God. They're not priests of Yahweh. They're priests of pagan gods. This is interesting. When we look at the seven-year tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, it marks the beginning of the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. The church will rule and reign with Christ, and the people that got saved will will be there, that accepted Christ will will, will be there uh, living on the earth, and will be ruling and reigning with Christ over them. But we'll see as time goes on. In Zechariah chapter 14, I'll read it for you. In Zechariah chapter 14, we see that there will be some, like say there's a tribulation saint, and they had kids, and their kids had kids, and their kids had kids, like all the way down the line, there's going to be those that, that didn't know how bad it was before Jesus came back in the millennial reign. And we're going to see the people still have free will, and there will be those that choose not to come up and worship the Lord. Let me show you the scripture real quick. In Zechariah chapter... 14 says this. This is after Jesus comes. He stands on the Mount of Olives. The battle of Armageddon takes place. Look at Zechariah chapter 14 verse 16. And it says, after all that, and it shall come to pass, this is during the millennial reign, that everyone who is left of all the nations, okay, tribulation saints uh, and Hebrews, uh, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. There's going to be those, even though Jesus is ruling and reigning, the world is so much better. This isn't new heaven, new earth yet. But there's going to be those that choose not to worship the Lord. They still worship other things or they worship themselves. That's what the priests are. They're those that even though God literally saved them from this famine. They're not worshiping the Lord. They're basically given over to, to do whatever they want and continue to worship the gods that they want to worship. Genesis chapter 47, verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day. For Pharaoh, look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one fifth to Pharaoh, four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So we see Joseph, he's a righteous man. He makes a deal with them. Hey, okay, here's the deal. You're going to sell yourselves to us. We're going to give you some land. We're going to give you seed to sow, but Pharaoh keeps 20%. Okay, and this wasn't for Joseph's benefit. This was for Pharaoh's benefit and Joseph just doing what he believed was the right thing to do. See, in the midst of famine, Joseph provides everything for them 
and he asks them to give 20% back to the king. God, he provides everything for us and he asks us to give 10% back. So it's like Joseph made a good deal. What God does with us in tithing, he makes an even better deal. Look at Genesis chapter 47, verse 25. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one fifth except for the land of the priests, only which did not come, become Pharaoh's. See, these people are saved by Joseph. Look at verse 25. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Because the salvation that Joseph brought to them, they chose to be servants. That's the same response that we should have to our salvation. As I kind of mentioned before, salvation should lead us to service. Point number three, salvation should lead us to service. See, these people, they recognize if it wasn't for Joseph, I wouldn't be saved. If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be saved. My reasonable response to him saving me should be service towards him or for him. If you look at Hebrews chapter 9, in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 14, says this, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's talking about the blood of Christ and what Jesus did so that we might be saved. And he says that shouldn't only clear your conscience, that should lead you to desire to serve the Lord. Service, it, 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 it's part of our Christian walk. It's part of our faith. It's our reasonable response to our salvation. Samuel, he has this message for the people in 1 Samuel chapter 12, specifically in verse 24. He says, this is your heart. This should be your heart for how good God's been to you, for the fact that he's saved you so many times in so many ways. It says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. Serve the Lord in truth with all your heart, considering what great things he's done for you. That should be our reasonable response when we look at what the Lord's done for us. He saved us, plus our reasonable response should be to serve him with all our heart. Again, it's part of our walk. It's part of our Christian faith. If you're not plugged in, if you're not involved, if you're not serving in some type of capacity for your own sake, I'd ask you to get plugged in. There's such a benefit from it. There's that extra connection with the Lord because we're doing what he's called us to do. Service should be our reasonable response to our salvation. Just like these people, they said, because you saved us, Joseph, we're going to become servants to the king. We're going to become servants to Pharaoh. Genesis chapter 47, verse 27 So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, 
in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 140 years, 40, sorry, 47 years. We'll get to that in a moment, but I want to point out something. So while Israel's dwelling in Egypt in the midst of famine, it says their possessions and their population, it grew exceedingly. Like there's a famine in the land, but the Hebrews, God's people, they're growing in numbers and they're growing in possession. God's literally supernaturally providing for his people in the midst of the famine. Point number four, God gives supernatural provision in the midst of the famine. God gives supernatural provision in the midst of the famine. Now, we're looking at uh, the material provision in, in this story. He's providing possessions. He's providing population. But for us in the midst of the famine, there's a truth that God provides supernatural provision spiritually. God provides spiritual provision for us. See, the world, the world constantly seeks material possessions and provision and they're always left empty. Look at Haggai chapter 1. Know we're everywhere tonight. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. He says, you're eating? And you're not being filled. You're drinking and you're constantly thirsty. Why? Because if we have that worldly, worldly mentality, those that are in the world, we seek provision from things that are never going to satisfy. Literally, I did it. Put myself in a spiritual famine. Always eating, always drinking, always doing whatever to satisfy that void. But it always left me empty. It would leave me more empty than I was when I started. And that's the truth for the world. But that's not the truth for us. God provides for us supernaturally. And I'll tell you, when you look at John chapter 4, Jesus says this. John chapter 4, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman that was was caught up in all kinds of immoral relationships and sexual immorality in her past. She was seeking love in all the wrong places. She was seeking satisfaction where she was never going to find it. And he says this to her. John chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He's speaking of a, a little a literal well, Jacob's well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is speaking of the relationship that we have in him. But we see in John chapter 7, he mentions water. He mentions uh, a verse very similar to this. And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, I'll read it for you. On the last day, verse 37, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We see Jesus, uh, John make this connection that when Jesus was saying, hey, I'll give you that everlasting water. It, it will be in you like a fountain of, of everlasting life, meaning you will constantly be satisfied. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit. See, in the midst of the famine, in the midst of the trial, God provides for us one of the most precious things he could provide. And that's his Holy Spirit. That's his divine nature. He gives it to us willingly if we ask. That's what he says in Luke chapter 11. Ask for the Holy Spirit and God will give it to you. He wants to. It's the greatest gift he could give you. If a father had anything that he wanted to give his son or his daughter, it would be just that, his divine nature, the greatest gift that he could possibly give them. And that's what our Heavenly Father does for us. He provides us the Holy Spirit even when we're in the midst of the famine. And that Holy Spirit, he will, he will give us the power to have love in the famine. He'll give us the power to have joy in the famine. He'll give us the power to have peace and long suffer and be faithful in the famine. We can do all those things in the midst of the trial because God will give us the Holy Spirit. He'll provide that supernaturally. But but he doesn't just provide the Holy Spirit. He provides his word. Jesus says this in John chapter 6. Almost there. John chapter 6. Verse 35. Jesus says, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. As we discussed in Haggai, they're drinking, they're not, the thirst isn't quenched, they're eating, but they're not full. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat from me and you will never go hungry. You will always be full. You will always be satisfied. And we know Jesus, speaking of the bread of life, he connects it to the word of God. What do I mean? God provides supernatural provision through his word. His word indeed will satisfy it, but there's a truth. We got to eat it. Okay. It's not just hearing it. It's chewing on it. He wants us to meditate on it. He wants us to think about it. It'd be like this. If I told you of like this awesome restaurant in Redlands, like you heard about this great restaurant. I was always talking up like, man, you got to try this. This restaurant is the bomb. If you don't go here, I don't know where you're going, but this is the best. And you're just hearing about it, but you never bother to go down the hill and go to the restaurant and eat the food if you don't go down to the restaurant and eat the food you're not going to know how great is it great it is that's what it's like when we're just hearing the word and we're not chewing on it we're not doing anything with it if we're just hearing it and we're not doing anything with it we're going to miss out on its power we're going to miss out on how great it is the lord says i'm the bread of life eat don't just hear chew on this stuff Eat it. It's food for your soul. The Lord, again, he provides supernaturally for us in the midst of the famine. Genesis chapter 47. Closing it out. I want to, I want to reread verse 28 because it's important. Uh, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the, leg, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his sons Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. 
Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So we see Jacob, Israel, he's on his deathbed. Time is short. Death is right around the corner. Literally, uh, chapter 49 at the end is when he's going to die. Okay. So what we see here is that God gave Jacob so much time, 147 years. I don't want to live that long, but he gave him that much time, but it was a limited amount of time. See point number five, God provides only so much time. God provides only so much time. Now, I'm not speaking of eternity. Obviously, that's forever. But I'm talking about in this life, on this earth. Jacob only had so much time. Time was running short. He only had had a few breaths left in him. He was on his deathbed. And for us, the Bible warns us of this. It talks to us about this. Life is short. We only have so much time. And it seems as we get older, it goes by faster, right? Every year it's like, oh my gosh, what happened that year? I'm in my thirties. Last thing I remember, I was 18. Like what's happening? But we do that, right? As we get older, we look back like, man, what happened to the time? It's just gone. My kids are in college, all these different things. Not me, you. <laughs> I don't have kids yet, but it's going to happen. I'm going to be up here in, in, in 18 years. I'm gonna, Judah's gone. What happened? You remember that? It's like, what the heck? But in all sincerity, as we get older, the, the time flies by. And James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 14, he says, our life is but a vapor. Like it's there and it's gone before you know it. It's, it's like nothing. Compared to eternity, it's next to nothing. It's a little dash on a tombstone. Only so much time. What are we doing with the time that God's gifted us? David says this in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. He says, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to, to, to live like we're on borrowed time. Teach us to live like eh, death is around the corner. That doesn't mean be in fear of death, but recognize there's only so much time to do so much on this earth. See, time is a gift from God. It's something that he provides for us and he gives us free will. He says, you do what you will with it, but there's certain things if you listen to my word, if you hear my voice, I got instruction for you to, to make the most out of your time. Because before you know it, just like a vapor, it's going to be over. Now think about that. I guarantee when we're on our deathbed, if we're like that with Jacob, and we look back at our life, we're not going to wish that we watched more, watched more TV or was on social media more. Okay, we're not going to look back and be like, man, I really wish that I spent more time doing these things. What are we going to wish we did more? I, I, I wish that that I spent more time with the Lord. I wish that I loved God and, and showed that more. And I, I wish that I spent time with the people that I loved. I wish that I loved God and love others. Guaranteed on our deathbed, that's going to be what we wish we did. That's what Jesus says. Keep it simple. You want to know the commandments? It's all summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's so simple, but we get distracted and we get caught up in these things and it's like, oh, what am I doing with my time? You know the days, maybe it was a weekend, maybe whatever it was. You get to the end of your day and you look back at the day and you're like, dude, what did I do? I did nothing with my day. I feel miserable. Like this is, this is not a good day. I wasn't productive. But those days that, that you connect with the body, that you're in the word, that you're seeking to, to please God, do everything unto the Lord, that you're connecting with your family and friends and your church family. Those are the days that are full, right? You go to bed good that night, right? It's like, man, I, I, I took advantage of the day and I'm so glad that I did. This is what David's talking about. Teach us to number 
our days. Time is precious. It's going to be gone quickly. Jacob, he's on his deathbed. He doesn't have much time left. And I'm sure there was things that he was grateful that he did and things that he regretted like all of us. But we have an opportunity to learn both from his successes and his failures and choose to do things that's going to bring God glory with our lives and our time. See, God is so good. He takes care of us even when life is hard. He provides for us even in the midst of the famine. But are we seeing it? Are we seeing God's provision in the midst of the famine? Maybe you're like, I'm not going through a famine. I'm not going through a trial. You will. God promises it. And it's the truth that, hey, hey, I'm blessing you. There's abundance, but it's just not the abundance you're looking for. I'm blessing you in these areas and we got to open our eyes and look at it. And then with the provision he provides, maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe work isn't going good, but family life's going good. Or, or maybe family life isn't going good, so work's going good. Whatever it is, there's opportunities to, to open our eyes and, and look at those things and say, this is what God's providing in this season. And this is how I'm going to be a good steward with the provision that the Lord has granted me. See, God will continue to be faithful and provide for his children in their need. Maybe not all we think we want, but he will provide all we need. But we have to be faithful to take advantage of the time he's given us, to take advantage of the provision that he's given us and purpose to live our lives in a way that's going to bring him the most glory. We never know when it's going to end. It's going to end soon for Jacob, but it's not hopefully for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, God, how you provide for us in so many ways. Lord, sometimes materially, all the time, spiritually, God, you, you give us everything we need in this life. And uh, there's times, there's seasons where uh, difficulties come. We, we maybe ex- experience loss, um, Lord, and, 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 and we get focused on the negatives and, and what we don't have, God, but I pray that we would focus on what we do have. And if anything, Lord, we have, uh, we have you, we have relationship with you. We have, we have the family of God to, to connect with. Lord, we have so many things. I pray that you would give us eyes to see these things, that we would live our lives with that gratefulness, knowing that, that again, you don't always give us what you want, what we want, but you give us everything we need. In Jesus' name. Amen.